This is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, we're seeing tourism rebound quicker than was forecast. That means hotels are filling up. We got to wondering if workers at hotels and airport concessions were being called back at the same rate. We reached out to Eric Gill, head of the Unite Here Local 5 union, who says it's been a daily battle to get his members back working. In some cases, workers are back, but with reduced hours. Many of our hotels are 90% and over. They certainly need the people. That doesn't mean, however, that hotels are bringing everybody back. They're trying to permanently reduce staffing. So we have a day-to-day battle on this. As of the end of April, we had about 46% of the 2019 work hours, which was not encouraging, you know, since in April we were already above 70, 80% in many places in terms of our occupancy. So the fact is tourists are back. They're back in a big way. We have more tourists actually from the mainland than we had before. And the hotels aren't bringing our jobs back, not all of them. And so we, we are fighting for our family's future here, but also for the future of our community. They, tourism doesn't work. In Hawaii, when we have more tourists and less jobs, we have to we have to change that. So, who are they not calling back? Are they not calling back enough housekeepers, bellmen? Yes, yes. Most of these companies have, uh, and we've been able to break through that in some cases. But the big chains have all taken the position that they're going to eliminate daily cleaning of hotel rooms. And in fact, Hilton and some of the others have made public pronouncements to their investors that. This is how they intend to increase the return for the investors, the, you know, increase the profits at the hotel by eliminating daily housekeeping. So this is a, a real problem since uh, daily housekeeping, depending on the hotel and the average length of stays and so on, is as much as half of the housekeeping workforce, which itself is the biggest single group of workers in, in any hotel. And so the fact that they are eliminating daily housekeeping affects thousands of Hawaii jobs and those housekeepers uh, will be those housekeepers will be left home. This is not true for all hotels. Some hotels have done the right thing. We have a contract that specifies daily housekeeping. You know, Hilton, Hyatt, the Marriott have all broken that contract by eliminating this using the pandemic as an excuse. However, we're getting through with them. You know, and some of the smaller hotels have already restored daily housekeeping or never stopped doing it. You know, Kahala's doing it, Alamona Hotel's doing it, Queen Kapilani, you know, a small hotel is doing daily housekeeping, and yet the Hilton and the Marriott and, and the Hyatt have refused to restore that. In addition to the housekeeping jobs that are at risk, many, many food and beverage jobs, restaurants remain closed in many of them or on reduced hours, so many of our cooks and our kitchen crew as well as our wage help and host help and cashiers and other jobs in the food and beverage side have not yet been restored. Stuff like valley parking, many hotels haven't restored that. Basically, what we're in the position here in 2021 is trying to restore full employment to our members and having to basically fight for fight for the jobs to come back. Now, that's not to say that, you know, I mean, as guests come back, they are bringing people back. But they're intending to plateau our workforce at a, a at a much lower amount of total work. Eric, can you say half of your workforce is back? I, w- I think more than half by now. We had, like you said, 46 percent. You know, when you when you look at the workforce, you have to understand some people being brought back one, two days a week or uh, reduced hours and so on. So when you look at the work hours itself, that's the most telling indicator uh, in a 
at about 46% returned at that time. We have been successful in May and uh, in June so far in restoring more jobs, so I believe we're over half by now. Um, but I won't know until the, the main numbers come in, which is due this week, actually. There are still a couple of hotels that are not open, at least on Oahu, because of renovations, right? I think Turtle Bay is one, and is it Halikolani? Yeah, Halikolani. We don't represent Halikolani, and that is a problem. When my comments so far have related to union shops, Turtle Bay is one. Uh, we are working with management there. We expect them to restore services. Uh, there may be even more uh, work out in Turtle Bay as the owner has put substantial money in and intends to operate a much higher higher level of service, which requires more people. So we're hoping that everything will go smooth there as they reopen. They've been rebuilding that place for over a year now and, and are, are getting to the point where, you know, they're, they're going to be uh, getting the guests back in and reopening the hotel. So we're working with them at Turtle Bay. There are, you know, there are encouraging signs, you know, around as the guests come back. I happened to drive uh, around the island. I was up on the North Shore this weekend, and there were crowds everywhere, uh, you know, lines of people at yep. restaurants in Waikiki. It was a, a really busy weekend. Yes, and, and the guests are here. We're having a, a special bump. You know, there's more mainland guests here now than there were in 2019, although we don't have... Asian trade. Now, this is a two-edged sword. You know, I mean, the fact is, tourism needs to serve Hawaii's people and not just crowd us out and turn us into servants of tourism. And so the, the, the notion that hotels will operate and reduce jobs to Hawaii is, is not just bad for union members, it's bad for Hawaii. I think we all saw the poll just a week or two ago about what Close to three-quarters of the respondents in Hawaii said that tourism should be controlled, that, that there shouldn't be an endless expansion of tourism. And uh, I agree with that. Tourism should serve us. We should have hotels that provide good, steady employment for our people and not hotels that inflict the problems associated with massive tourism clogging up our roads and our highways and our restaurants and every other place and, and yet leaving our our own people at home without work. This is a real problem for those hotel workers who are not protected by a union contract, which is most of them. We've seen other hotels where they've subcontracted out the entire workforce. We've seen non-union hotels where even when they bring people back, make them come back as new workers and give up all the years of service that they had acquired before or come back with reduced pay. In one case, we saw uh, Cook, for example, being pushed back from 24 bucks an hour to 16 bucks an hour. So, so the, the corporate bosses of our hotels, these are all mainland corporations at this point, are exploiting Hawaii mercilessly right now and have used the pandemic as an excuse to reduce services. And that's bad for Hawaii. But when it, you talk about reducing pay, I mean, isn't that spelled out in your contract? Well, exactly. Uh, they can't do that to our members, but they certainly can and are doing it to the workers who don't have a union contract, which I is see. most hotel workers. And so, you know, as we gain our jobs back, we also have to turn our attention to those other hotels where where owners have basically jettisoned the workforce and are bringing back people for less or bringing back different people. I'm very concerned about a widespread uh, age discrimination here where, you know, many senior workers are not going to be brought back. 
or are going to be brought back into uh, jobs that are so you know so difficult that it may be too difficult for them. We have a real problem here in Hawaii. We have to make a decision, and Hawaii has to be able to stand up to these global corporations that are exploiting our beaches and our people. Do you represent the um, folks at the airport? You know, I just flew this past uh, week, and coming back through the airport, it was obvious, you know, that, that most of our uh, food and beverage uh, workers there haven't been called back. There, there are so many dark dark restaurants there. HMS Host is the employer there. We have a contract with them, and we're pushing them to restore jobs, and yet uh, many people haven't yet returned. Yeah, I, I don't uh, understand that. I mean, if the tourists are coming, wouldn't you open up those restaurants? You would think so, wouldn't you? And yet and yet they haven't. You know, this is not just a problem in Hawaii, but uh, across the country. We represent host workers in many cities. What's happening here is, you know, just as after 9-11, we had a permanent retrenchment and reduction of work hours in the various hotels after 9-11. And it's happening worse now. 9-11 didn't have the pandemic excuse to eliminate daily room cleaning, for example. This is their business model. They're going to automate. We're seeing a lot more of that uh, automation coming in, mm-hmm. and that is uh, affecting jobs as well. Right now, what they're doing is they're doing the automation that you pay for. So they're automating keys, you know, like, gotcha. like the airlines, you know, so they use your, your smartphone and stuff like that. So they're, they're doing that sort of automation now. Some of the more visible robotic, I, I think we're going to see those in the future. Right now, they're working on algorithms and software and trying to um, automate jobs, basically, as they can increasingly do with, with smarter computers. Going into this, we had about 11,000 members. You know, as of the end of 2020, you know, we were less than half of that in terms of people actually working. Um, we're recovering somewhat, but as I said, it was 46% of the work hours. I'm hoping we're up to 65 by now mm-hmm. uh, at the end of May and more in June, I'm hoping. But there's many people that still haven't gone back to work. How are your members doing on the vaccinations? We haven't seen a big pushback. First of all, I don't have data because, you know, the, the hotels don't report this uh, to us anyway. I'm sure that vaccinations are reported to the state. But I, overall, I think... Most of our members have taken the vaccination. Gotcha. Um, there are some who hesitate uh, for a variety of reasons. You know, employers haven't attempted to mandate this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think overall the vaccination rate is pretty high in the hotels, and it should be. We've been hearing from Eric Gill, head of Unite Here Local 5, one of two unions which represents workers in our hotels as well as at the airport concessions across the state. A spokesman for the Hawaii Transportation Department said businesses at the airport are open, though it's not clear if operating hours are limited and if they are all back at full staffing. One of the many people traveling this weekend was HPR Savannah Harriman-Pote. She saw firsthand what it was like on the first day that travel restrictions were relaxed inter-island. How was it? <laughs> it was it was interesting. Uh, and special thanks to my mom, who got up at 5 a.m. to drive me to the Kona <laughs> Airport. <laughs> but just to specify, so the new tra- travel easements that kicked in yesterday, June 15th, 
mean that residents who are tra- traveling inter-island will not need to provide either a negative COVID test or proof of vaccination. So there's no need to even fill out that safe travels profile that we've all become so familiar with. And I actually flew out last week Friday. So that was the first time I used the vaccine passport, which was what we've had in place for the last month and a half or so. And I'd say for residents who have been traveling with the vaccine passport, that is a program that has been popular and efficient. Yesterday probably didn't feel that different to them. Um, It was really quickly moving through the system. However, there are a lot of changes that are happening behind the scenes on our airline and transportation infrastructure level that took place yesterday. Right. I mean, we've got change after change and everybody's got to adapt and uh, you know we've heard this word over and over again pivot but they've had to do that absolutely absolutely and it applies differently to different airlines so i did reach out to some of our major carriers hawaiian airlines says that they are seeing an uptick in reservations in the second half of june as residents are able to travel more freely and july bookings are outstripping june as well so things are getting back to normal for hawaiian airlines mostly when it comes to travel and leisure travel. Business travel is still a little dampened, and Southwest echoed that statement. However, for an airlines like Mokolele, which services the population in a much different way, they have seen a different pattern over the past couple of months. Keith Sisson is the chief marketing officer for uh, Southern Airways, which operates Mokolele Airlines. I spoke to him yesterday, and this is what he had to say. We overwhelmingly serve the local population. Only 10, maybe 15% of our business is non-resident travel. The big deal for us was the passport travel for inter-island use. That was when we really saw the overnight increase in people going to the neighbor islands. For the most part, we are running people who live on one island, work on another, and, and that does include a lot of daily travel. And there's also just the travel of families reconnecting. We're seeing a lot of that now. There are a lot of grandmothers who haven't seen grandchildren in quite some time, and we're we're seeing those people using Mokalele to reconnect now that the travel restrictions have eased uh, and now lifted. So again, as June 15th's restrictions apply, really depend on what your needs are and what your carrier is. So I spoke with Jai Cunningham as well, and he said that he's mostly seeing leisure travel at the airports. However, if you get up for that 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock flight, you'll see a lot of hard hats, a lot of people who are commuting to do construction projects on outer islands. Right, and he's a new spokesman for the Department, State Department of Transportation, yes. so he's keeping an eye on the comings and goings there. Yes, absolutely. And when I had that conversation with them, I asked about staffing. So people who were brought in specifically to help move people through the safe travels profile testing or to confirm their vaccine profiles. And he said that that staff, one, it's important to note that 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 is contract staff. So the um, Federal Aviation Administration does not allow airport personnel to be used for that screening. So the airports do contract that out here in Oahu at the Honolulu Airport. We contract with Roberts Hawaii. And that staff is likely going to be reallocated throughout the airport to address other needs. Um, And additionally, that kind of opens up the whole realm of different testing partners and testing procedures that we've had in order to facilitate travel access the past couple of months. So, for instance, a lot of the testing that people are doing throughout the islands currently is to allow 
for travel. I reached out to Kaiser Permanente and their spokesman, Laura Lott, estimated that 40% of the tests they conduct are travel-related. So we are lifting up a lot of burden of how we're currently using those resources. And then there's more specific procedures like Common Pass. Uh, Common Pass is an app that was developed specifically to allow users to upload their test results and now their vaccination passport to show that they meet the requirements to travel. And I reached out directly to Paul Meyer, the CEO of the Commons Project, which partners through Common Pass with the Safe Travels program, along with United and Hawaiian Airlines, to see what the future of that partnership is now that the state travel restrictions have been lifted. And theoretically, as we reach different thresholds of vaccination, will become more and more unnecessary. And he said that there will be more de- or less demand for testing for domestic travel. Um, and once we hit that 70% vaccination thres- threshold and the safe travel programs ends, he says that that focus will shift to screening international travelers. So even once domestic travel is fully open, we'll still need to ensure that people who are coming in from outside the U.S. are appropriately screened. But there are other ways in which he thinks that the state's infrastructure could partner with something like Common Pass. Here's what he had to say about that. There are lots of reasons that people need their vaccination records. Parents need their kids' vaccination records every, every September to register for school. Right. There, are also, there are all sorts of reasons why people need to get access to their health information and be able to share it. You know, that's the foundation of the Commons Project. That's what Common Health does. In some ways, Common Pass was really used to s- solve this travel access problem, which has obviously become very acute. But it's built on infrastructure and it's enabled through the Common Health platform that has l- lots of importance for empowering people with their health information for all sorts of reasons. And this echoes something that Jai Cunningham said when I spoke with him. He's, of course, very optimistic and very thankful that we are getting back to normal. But he says, you know, let's not throw out the whole toolbox we developed during the pandemic in case there is an instance in which we do need to return to these types of procedures. Yeah, I haven't done any traveling during the pandemic. And uh, I think it was United that said, oh, if you, uh, you know, upload your vaccine passport, you know, we'll uh, dangle some miles out there. And I thought, (laughs) oh, gosh, I don't know how to do that. (laughs) Right, right. And I I think that there are different elements of travel, too, that we need to talk about today. We've talked mostly about inner island travel. But the other aspect of the June 15th restrictions that were lifted is residents who have been vaccinated in Hawaii now do not have to get tested to return to the islands if they can show their vaccine passport. And that's incredibly helpful for individuals who are traveling beyond just the West Coast. So I personally flew back from Virginia in February and had to get tested. And it was difficult to find a trusted tested partner because most of them are based on the West Coast. And additionally, you have to have your test results within 72 hours of the last leg of your flight. So if you have for instance, a six-hour flight from one coast to the other, and then you have an overnight layover, that really shortens the window you have to ensure that your tests are accurate. Yeah, we'll give you credit for uh, dealing with all that stress. (laughs) Well, it's only getting easier. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much. Thank you, Catherine. We have been hearing from Savannah Harriman-Pote about the latest round of travel changes. You can hear her stories uh, right here on The Conversation. All my bags are packed, I'm ready to go. Standing here outside your door I hate to wake you up to say goodbye But the dawn is breaking, it's early morn The taxi's 
This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Sometimes, something is so strongly associated with Hawaii for so long, many forget where the item originated from. One example is the ukulele. The small guitar-like instrument is featured on many Hawaiian music albums and is played by so many celebrated Hawaiian musicians. The word ukulele translates to jumping flea in Hawaiian, yet those who know its history know it was introduced to our islands by Portuguese immigrants in the late 19th century. Another example is the pikake flower, also known as the Arabian jasmine. This plant is widely grown across the state in local landscapes and gardens for its aromatic blossoms. They open in the early evening and typically stay open for 24 hours with its fragrance at the strongest between 7 and 10 a.m. I didn't know that. It is also a favorite of commercial producers who use the flower to make perfume, tea, and lei worn in weddings or given as an expression of love. After its arrival in Hawaii, likely from India or Southeast Asia, it delighted our Princess Ka'iulani so much that she named it after her favorite bird. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know what kind of bird was the pikake named after? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareedhawaii.com. security versus food security. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats business reporter Stuart Yurton on the line today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So, local food, cheaper power. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, yes. Well, what's happening now, um, and this is uh, proceeding uh, before the State Land Use Commission, um, has really brought this tension into into focus. Again, we have limited land on Oahu, um, especially limited land with uh, that's flat with a lot of sun, and solar farms want that kind of land, and farmers like that kind of land. So the question is how to navigate that uh, that tension and, and competing demand for such land. Yeah, there's a tug of war going on. 
There is, and what's really brought it into focus is this: uh, the the city of Honolulu, city and county of Honolulu, has proposed to designate uh, forty-one thousand acres. It's um, about twelve percent of of the island of Oahu, um, designated as important agricultural lands, which would place some limitations on what can be done on the land. Uh, what those limitations are, it's not exactly clear. But it really does seem like those lands would be uh, set aside mostly for agriculture, if not uh, entirely for agriculture. So these uh, companies that do renewable energy, including companies with existing projects, are saying, whoa, this is not good. You're going to be designating some of our land where we actually have projects as important agricultural lands. Uh, this is a really a big concern to us, uh, and they're trying to stop it. Right, and I think we've talked about this before, right? There was a project where someone came in and wanted to build on the the uh, ultra-Uber ag lands, and uh, uh, even though they had some, uh, I guess, more rocky land just adjacent to it, but they just thought it was easier, they could get it up faster. But, you know, it does make people say, mm, not so fast. Well, right. Uh, and, and again, you, you can understand the people in agriculture saying, whoa, wait a minute, this is really good land and we, we need it for farming. Uh, please don't put uh, solar panels on it. Um, so it, it's, again, quite a problem. The, the interesting thing is there's this whole idea uh, the, they call it agrivoltaics. So the thought is, hey, we can share the land. We can use it for both. But that's not happening on a huge scale yet. It does seem to be a path forward. Uh, there's some smart people working on it. The Hawaii Agricultural Research Center is looking into this. Um, but again, it's, right now, uh, that's the only um, real, so the best solution, it seems, to this is this idea of agrivoltaics. Right. And I think we saw some uh, farmers use uh, their... Um they're sheep, right, to basically keep the grass down around those solar uh, panels, those projects. And, and there was some thought that they could develop that uh, lamb, you know, for the local restaurants. Right, right. So that's the idea. So maybe they can do sheep farming or goat farming for, for local restaurants. Cows apparently get too big. So you could, you could do calves, I guess. But cows could get a little too big and maybe bump the solar panels and damage them. But yeah, the, sh the idea is sheep could be done. You could plant things that grow nicely in shade, like lettuce that don't really, doesn't really want a lot of sun or basil or other things. Sweet potatoes apparently are a thing. You know, remember mm -hmm. if it's under the, the solar arrays, it can't grow too tall. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's gotta be cause a lot of uh, very uh, specific characteristics to make this work. Um, but it, but again, in the meantime, what we're seeing is more opposition to this important agricultural lands uh, proceeding that the city and county of Honolulu is uh, has has uh, put forth. And you know, you did reach out to the head of the energy state energy office, right? And they don't seem to be willing to change the rules right now. Well, right. But again, uh, Scott Glenn he noted that already. The best soil is not going to be used for energy projects. So that's off the table, and that's fine. 
Um, but they don't have a stand and they haven't taken a position on this important agricultural lands proceeding and what's happening right now, um, mostly because it's too new. This thing caught a lot of people unawares, including the energy companies. And part of the reason they oppose it is they just don't know what it's going to mean for them and their ability to use their lands. Okay, well, we'll just see how this tug of war turns out. <laughs> but thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was uh, Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. I'll read his story on this issue. Uh, head to civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the exhibition Joyful Return, featuring a gallery presentation of modern and contemporary artworks from a diverse group of 20th century artists. HonoluluMuseum.org. Coming Saturday, June 19th, it's a live stream Atherton Studio performance with the lush sounds of Intoxica. The trio revive and reinterpret exotica music made famous by artists like Cal Jader, Martin Denny, and Arthur Lyman. It's a virtual concert, so you can join us from anywhere. Sign up at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Duke's Waikiki and Hula Grill Waikiki. A major milestone this week is the federal government turned over 80 acres to the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Reporter Kuvehirishi covers Hawaiian issues for HPR. She joins us in studio today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, so this uh, land parcel in Eva Beach at the end of uh, Fort uh, Weaver Road, some might uh, be familiar with the former Pacific Tsunami Warning Center site, this uh, has uh, been officially uh, transferred over to the Department of Hawaiian Homelands, and it has the potential, according to the Department of um, Developing, at least uh, as much as 400 uh, homestead lots, and that would mean uh, 400 Hawaiian families off the wait list uh, here on Oahu. And this uh, transfer helps fulfill a, a 1995 settlement agreement with uh, the United States federal government um, under the Hawaiian Homelands Recovery Act. And this is pretty much a settlement uh, to make good on about 1,500 acres that was originally uh, in the Hawaiian Homes inventory, but was used in the uh, since 1921 uh, by the federal government for other purposes. Uh, one. Uh, sort of big parcel that I think of is uh, a lot of the uh, land in Lualuale Valley there in Waianae mm. was supposed to be a uh, use for homesteading, uh, but was sort of taken uh, by the federal government to be used uh, for military purposes at the time. Right, the antennas, right? Yes. Back in that valley. Exactly. So, so far under this agreement, um, about 900 acres of federal land have uh, been transferred to DHHL, but a lot of that uh, was not uh, suitable for homesteading. Right. And so the, one of the main uh, objectives or goals of the Hawaiian Homes uh, Commission and the Department of Hawaiian Homelands is to uh, award homesteads. So that 900 acres, I'm thinking of Omega Station in Haiku Valley, um, which uh, DHHL does have in its inventory now, uh, Barbers Point, a uh, raceway, and then also Upolu Point on, on the Big Island in, in Kohala. Uh, all thankful for the uh, sort of transfer, but again, um, this is the first time where there may be homesteads coming out of these transfers. Well, you know, I have to admit, when I first saw this story the other day, my immediate reaction was, 
wait a minute, because the Tsunami <laughs> Center moved away from that area. And I've been there many times, and that's in the flood zone. And I think uh, uh, some of it's in the tsunami inundation area as yes. well. So uh, I thought, mm. Right. Is it worth it? Um, and the, the department did uh, do... Um, do its due diligence in trying to weigh that option, right? I mean, this is sort of the first um, instance of flat land that they've been able to have to develop. And so you're right, though, the Makai portion of the property is in the tsunami evacuation zone, and the Maoka property also the extreme evacuation zone. I think by one estimate, sea level rise uh, by 2081 is, is what they have in, in, in the report, uh, could be up to three feet in this area. So one of the ideas there is to um, go ahead and grade and lift, you know, uh, set up uh, sort of a um, uh, a lot of uh, underground so that they can go ahead and develop on it and live there for a, a longer amount of time. Yeah, I mean, when I talked to DHHL yesterday, you know, that was just my question was like, okay, because I didn't see any stories really address that, and the city mm -hmm. just adopted that whole climate right. plan. So I just wondered how that was going to make, if it's going to make it more difficult to, to put up homes there. I, it, it definitely isn't the, the best land, but I think it's going to be the best offer. A lot of what um, I've been hearing surrounding this this federal transfer of land is sort of this, um, what's made a difference in making this happen in the minds of some is that we do have uh, the first uh, indigenous woman appointed to, the uh, to head the department, U.S. Department of the Interior. And so a lot uh, uh, can be done in the, in, you know, during the Biden-Harris administration, at least that's the hope for some of our congressional delegation. But U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Holland was uh, on the press call uh, talking about this transfer, and you can hear it in her voice uh, how much this means uh, to her. As someone who has had the benefit of growing up with access to my ancestral homeland, I know how important it is to learn about our traditions and that they're intertwined with nature, how to care for the land, and the importance of passing down stewardship and indigenous knowledge to future generations. To make this announcement, yes, it's a happy day, but it's also a sad day because we remember the tragedy that befell the Native Hawaiians throughout a tumultuous history. Since that time, our country has learned a great deal, and now we are in an era where we recognize the importance of healing the generational traumas that have caused pain and heartache. Yeah, powerful. Uh, there, there, um, there's no timeline yet on when this land will be available for homesteading, but there is still about six million, six point nine million dollars left in sort of this debt settlement agreement. Um, with Holland at, at the helm, uh, the Department of Hawaiian Homelands is hoping that uh, more uh, federal land transfers can happen in the in the next couple of years. Right. So it, it's symbolic. You know, she's a Native Hawaiian. I mean, Native American. Right. Um, you know, and then you've got this Native Hawaiian. Uh, uh, important milestone uh, and its land that it can be used for housing quickly. Right. She is Pueblo uh, of Laguna there uh, from what's now known as New Mexico and so understanding that helps uh, but the next step right now is for the department to go to the legislature to secure some funding for master planning. They're going to go back out to the beneficiaries and uh, hopefully we'll see what happens then. Okay. Hopefully it happens soon but thank you so much. Thank you. That was Kuve Hiraishi talking to us about the significance of a land transfer between the U.S. Interior Department and the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Ano, ano, hey, ika 
This is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Today, we train our binoculars on a group of goose-sized seabirds and their aerobatic aerials over the sea. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to boobies in this week's Manu Minute. Boobies are a group of goose-sized tropical seabirds with long pointed bills, wings, and tails. There are three species of boobies that live in Hawaii, the red-footed, the brown, and the masked, and all are known by their Hawaiian name of ah, spelled okina a with a kahako over the a. Ah is a sound they often make when nesting, and it's also the shortest name for any bird in the world. Red-footed boobies in Hawaii are mostly white with bright red legs, while brown boobies are just that, a deep chocolatey brown. Masks are also white but have yellow bills and a jet black mask. All of them forage by making spectacular head-first aerial plunges into the ocean from heights of up to 30 meters to grab a variety of fish and squid. Nesting mainly occurs on the northwest Hawaiian Islands, as well as many offshore islets around the main Hawaiian Islands, but the red-footed also nest in fairly large numbers in shrubs and small trees at Kaneohe Marine Base on Oahu. Unlike many other birds, boobies often incubate their eggs by sitting on them with their big webbed feet. Masked and brown boobies nest on the ground, and they typically lay two eggs a few days apart. The first chick to hatch grows quickly, and in most years kills its siblings soon after it hatches, a very common practice in some groups of birds that's known as siblicide. It's generally thought they do this because there's not enough food for both chicks to survive. If they do successfully leave the nest, boobies can live to well over 20 years old. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Forest Bathing Hawaii, offering guided walks to reconnect with the natural world, in person at Lion Arboretum for individuals, private and corporate groups, and virtual walks gifted to frontline workers. ForestBathingHI.com Sometimes the topics we cover or the guests we interview strike a chord with our listeners. Our talkback line is how they share their thoughts when our show makes an impression on them. Here's a voicemail a listener left after our show about public access yesterday. Toby Morris calling from Kailua, Oahu today. My comment is clearly the priority has been given to the tourists over the resident in Hawaii. And the outcome of that is that people have moved away from where I live. They can't go to the store because the traffic's so bad. And there's places that we used to be able to go, I mean, even the beach, that are no longer, um, we're no longer to go to because there's just too many tourists on the beach. So if this is what the state wants, that's the outcome that they got. And it, it clearly shows where the priority is. Thank you. We also received this email. It seems that many of the most popular parks have diminishing assessments. In many cases, we exceeded the design capacity on a regular basis. When is too much too much? 
I do know that it is a problem that is getting larger. Parks are where many of Oahu's residents spend their prime time. Perhaps legislators should shift their funding priorities. No easy answers, but it needs to be addressed. A major shift in the aloha spirit is happening due to inadequate facilities. Mahalo, Bob. Cases of COVID-19 at the Hawaii Community Correctional Center stand at more than 200. After our interviews covering the issues at the Hilo Jailhouse last week, a Big Island caller left this voicemail. Timo calling from Hilo. We appreciate the research and the heavy lifting about the the Hilo Jail and the overpopulation. That's good information. We don't wouldn't receive it otherwise. We appreciate your hard work there at the station. The other program um, you periodically have on the the UH Hilo bird gentleman who, who talks about all the various species and that. That's a great little incidence there that you add to the station as well. We appreciate that. Keep that up. We, we like that. Thank you. And thank you for the compliment. If you missed today's Manu Minute, you can check out online at uh, hawaiipublicradio.org along with today's full show. And, you know, after our series of interviews on Oahu's rail project over the last four weeks, one listener made this suggestion via email. Aloha all. The rail should be turned into a public park like New York's The High Line that would eliminate the endless money pit of rail. Mahalo. That's from Mendy Hansen of Hilo, Hawaii. If you have something you want to share about a guest or a topic on our show, call our Talkback line 792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. today's Backyard Quiz, we're testing your knowledge of a transplanted flower that's become nearly synonymous in Hawaii with a strong expression of love. Outside of our islands, this flower is known as the Arabian jasmine, even though it's more likely, more than likely it originated in India or Southeast Asia. In fact, it's one of the national flowers of the Philippines. Here, we call it pikake, and it's beloved for its pleasantly fragrant blossom. While some commercial growers use it to make perfume or tea, most of us are familiar with its use in lay. It's popular in lay, worn in weddings, or given to someone who we really love or admire. And while it's not indigenous to our state or the Hawaiian culture, its high value started at the time of its introduction. Legend has it Princess Ka'iolani was so smitten with the flower's fragrance, she had hedges of it planted at Ainahau, the estate in Waikiki where she grew up which was located near the present-day location of the hotel bearing her name. She was also the one who gave it its Hawaiian name, Pikake, which is the transliteration of the name of her favorite bird, the peacock. And congratulations to Michelle from Mililani. She says that she is a friend who is a veterinarian and who has the last name Peacock, Dr. Peacock. That is today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, give us a call at 792-8217 or send an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You 
may be familiar with the unofficial creed of the U.S. Postal Service. It goes, neither snow nor rain nor heat, not at the gloom of night, stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. But dog bites may be another thing. Take a listen. The Postal Service places the safety of its employees as a top priority and dedicates a week each year to dog bite awareness. Dog attacks are 100% preventable when dog owners remain vigilant and properly restrain their dogs. To ensure mail carrier safety, dog owners must securely lock their dog in another room until a delivery exchange is done. If outside, dogs must be leashed away from the mailbox. So please, keep your dog on that leash or away from the door so your letter carrier can deliver safely to your mailbox today and every day. Okay, well, you know, nationally, the Postal Service saw dog bite cases soar last year, close to 6,000. In Hawaii, the number of cases is on track to surpass the rate pre-pandemic by a lot. We've seen 19 cases so far, and the year isn't even at the halfway mark yet. Richard Anderson is the safety manager for the Hawaii District of the U.S. Postal Service. What's been happening is uh, with the increase in the um, e-commerce, and here we are in, still in the era of COVID, we have a lot more people that are home. Uh, we have school children that are home. Many are apprehensive to go out to the grocery stores or just doing the normal shopping they might do. So as a result, uh, they're in the comfort of their home, just ordering quite a bit of things online. And so that increase in the parcel volume obviously equates to many of our carriers being out. And with more people at home, their dogs are more or less not as confined as they usually are. And that has had a direct correlation to the dog bite incidents we've had. I see. So they're just out there with more frequency, I guess. I mean, because I've seen you out there on Sundays delivering packages. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's because of the frequency. We really saw an uptick in the amount of injuries during uh, the holiday season. And as again, people are buying gifts and different things of that nature, even the pharmaceuticals and medicinals they may need uh, by being indoors. So uh, that uptick in the amount of parcels, as you mentioned, early morning, sometimes late evening, and Sunday deliveries has had a direct correlation in the amount of injuries to our our employees. So this is going on across the country then. It's not just here in Hawaii. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, last year, we had 5,800 incidents nationwide. And we've seen a 58% increase here in Hawaii with the amount of accidents that we had last year as compared to this fiscal year. So these dog bites, I hope they haven't been too serious. Well, they have. In fact, some of the incidents have been very traumatic. Uh, we had a traumatic incident this year that did require a hospital stay and extensive reconstructive surgery for one of our carriers. And even from the customer standpoint, uh, this particular incident, the customer tried to restrain their own pet. And in the heat of the moment, the pet actually snipped and bit at the owner. So it was a traumatic incident, not only for our employee, but for the customer also. So what are you advising the public to do in order to, to keep the carrier safe and just to avoid these interactions? One of the suggestions that we make, obviously a lot of our carriers know their customers personally, 
And if it's possible and safe to do, we affect those deliveries face-to-face. So in that situation, we're asking the customers to restrain their dogs, even leashing them within the home. The dogs are very comfortable. If the customer opens up the door, the dog is going to be right behind them. And instinctively, what the pets will do is as the carrier crosses the barrier, if you will, if they're near the fence, if they reach across to deliver the uh, package directly to the customer, the dog will reach out and think, hey, I need to protect my owner, and they will reach out and try to attack our employee. So what we're asking is that when those types of incidents happen, we would like the customers to restrain their pets in the home before they come out to pick up their package. Are you seeing more of these dog bite cases happen in the urban areas or in the rural areas? Well, to be honest with you, it's in both. Uh, So even the residential pet, whether he has a kennel or is in the house or roams the yard, uh, is a potential threat. In the rural areas, obviously, there may be a lot of roaming dogs that are out and about and unrestrained. So basically, our uh, dog bite incidents have happened across the entire state, whether residential or rural. One thing we're bringing attention to is be aware any dog can bite. So our recommendations, once again, is basically to restrain the pets in one way or another, make sure that they are secure, either behind a fence or leashed within the home. Make sure that you are watching your pet or even affecting repairs to your fence, your gate, They can slip through or jump over those. We've had incidents like that. But it's more for the customer to bring awareness to their pet so as not to uh, have an injury to themselves, to the employee, or even to the dog. Gosh, pre-pandemic, what were the bite cases at? Were they fairly low? Yes, they were. Pre-pandemic, they were. Again, we saw a 58% increase in our district just this year. Pre-pandemic, it was across the nation uh, what we normally have. You know, we do have the Awareness Week every year to bring awareness. But we have seen a real huge uptick in the amount of injuries during the pandemic. Our message is our employees year-round know that dogs may pose a threat to them. But this week is really for our customers, the awareness of our customers that their pets Though docile and loving with their family, are doing what they are designed to do, and that's to protect their owners. So the customers may think that their pet is a very mannerable pet, but in the presence of a carrier or anyone, uh, they see that as a threat. So this is a design to bring awareness to our customers of the potential that their pet can pose to our carriers. That was Hawaii's USPS Safety Manager, Richard Anderson. And reminder, 2021 National Dog Bite Awareness Week uh, takes place through June 18th. And the theme again, be aware any dog can bite. Spread the news of the campaign by using the hashtag uh, Dog Bite Awareness. Well, we're out of time. Up tomorrow, pandemic, what pandemic? We take you out to Oahu's North Shore where the tourist activity is bustling. Got a story you want to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line. 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or tweet us at HI Conversation. Email works too. 
talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You want to listen back to something that you heard? Find our shows archived online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.